Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our series in Acts. Well, guess what? This is our 10th anniversary of uh, being up here on this site, this facility. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's been 10 years. Uh, When I look in the mirror, I can believe it, but, uh, uh, you know, some of you that have just recently started attending here, you don't realize that uh, we always haven't even not had this building. We haven't even always had buildings. Uh, We were just a small church that started uh, 40 years ago and uh, moved around looking for some place to rent and eventually purchased a, a building down in the old uh, Ralph Shopping Center right down Poinsettia, and this is that right here, and uh, then we moved up here 10 years ago, so we're so grateful to God, and if you asked, uh, how did we do this, um, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just amazed, uh, but we, we did it through quarterly offerings, we just simply asked you uh, to believe in this, that uh, God has a destiny for this church and uh, to give be above and beyond your regular giving. And so you did it. So we're going to make our Freedom Fest celebration this 4th of July a celebration also of our 10th anniversary. And we hope that you can be here. Well, uh, today we are in Acts chapter 17 and would love for you to turn there. And as you're turning there, I want to introduce you to an idea. Some of you already know this idea. The slogan is all things to all people. If you think about this, uh, oftentimes you and I, we live in a society where we try to make all people like us. We, uh, we're not egocentric, we just, we just haven't lived in their shoes and we don't know how to live in their shoes and we certainly don't know how to follow Christ in their shoes and so we simply expect them to become like us. And, and it's, it's a mistake that all of us make. The challenging and radical idea is that the Apostle Paul, 20 centuries ago, where it would be much more uh, likely that someone would be centered around themselves in their own culture, for him it was a Jewish culture, he wrote this. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. So the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, that God so loved you, so loved me, or better translated, God loved you and me in such a way. That's what the text really means, in such a way. In what way? that he came and he died for you and he died for me. And part of that in such a way is the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas time that God crossed the infinite gap from heaven to earth, from deity to humanity, from eternity to temporality and entered into our world and entered into a Jewish culture. Now you probably think that the angels speak uh, Hebrew. You know that that and they and they and the, and they wear prayer prayer shawls like they did when Jesus uh, was walking the streets of Jerusalem. But it's not so. Jesus entered into a specific culture that God had chosen, and 
The important thing is that God enters into your culture, into my culture. Not that all culture is perfect. Our culture needs to be redeemed. Your culture needs to be redeemed. Nevertheless, Jesus came and ate our food. He spoke our language. He walked our streets. And it becomes a model for evangelism. So when I reach out with the love of Jesus, we often call this the locker room. Out there is the playing field. It's not just simply, why don't you come and be like me and meet in my church and do things the way I do? It's rather, how can I enter into your world? What's going on in your life? And begin to discover them. Someone said to me last night, she said, um, What convinced me that Jesus Christ was real was Christmas. Any God who would enter into my world to save me, I'm convinced. I want to follow that God. And so it is in sharing Christ. When we enter into someone else's world, they're convinced and they want to begin to know Christ. So we're going to study the Apostle Paul and see how he did it. And what's fascinating is Paul, you might say, batted left-handed and right-handed. When it came to people who knew the scriptures, who were religious, Paul would take the scriptures and dialogue and debate the scriptures with religious people. When he turns and goes to non-religious people, He takes philosophers, quotes from philosophers, and adapts his thinking to talk in Athens about the unknown God, left-handed, right-handed. And I want to encourage you, as you go out into the streets of, of North Coastal County, that you're going to come in contact with people that have a very religious background. Tell me about that. How do we enter into that? But people increasingly that have no religious background at all, but they still want and need Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that you would be with us in this study this morning, that you would open up our hearts, our minds to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first of all, reasoning with people who know the Scriptures. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, easy for me to say, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom. So this is what Paul did in every city, first looking for the synagogues uh, to start there. Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbaths, which means three weekends in a row, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. There it is. He's explaining and proving from the Scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. I love the fact that you're expected to know who Jason is. 
But the readers largely do, because Jason became a, a leader uh, in the Thessalonica church. So they rushed to Jason's house, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now I have come here. No, notice the globalization, uh, black and white thinking. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, all of them defying Caesar's decrees, a globalization, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. I love the graphic detail that Dr. Luke, who wrote Acts, gives us here. So first of all, Paul goes to the synagogue. That was always his starting point because there's a chance if someone has knowledge of Scripture and an open heart, I can build on that and move much faster than if they have no knowledge of Scripture at all. So if you look on the screen, here's a picture of a synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus had his headquarters. And what you'll see here is in the center here where the columns are is the original uh, section of the synagogue, this being the front portion of the synagogue. And then as they needed to expand it, uh, they did. And, and you'll see the stadium seating over here, which would be on the other side in the, in the back as well. And then the rabbi or whoever's presenting would stand here in the middle, uh, would stand to read the scriptures, but then sit as was the custom as a posture of authority and, and expound. As I get older, maybe I'll be sitting as I, as I speak to you, but I, right now I think better on my feet. So what Paul does here is he reasons from the scriptures in verse 2 and 3, explaining and proving the gospel. So the Jews have the Torah, and he's taking the Torah and using the sermon section that, that would be given him as a traveling rabbi inviting him to speak. It gives the, the, the local rabbi a day off, and they get to hear what Paul has to say. And Paul opens the scriptures and begins to prove. Now, many of you would know Psalm 22. If you have never read Psalm 22, go read Psalm 22. There's many, many verses in the Old Testament that are considered to be messianic, but specifically Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 have some of the most graphic detail about the crucifixion. And at that time, and many today, uh, don't believe that these verses are about the Messiah. But Paul is explaining to the Jews that this is the Messiah who's suffering, and, and at the end of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, it doesn't use the word resurrection, but it ends with a hopeful statement that the Messiah is going to see the resolve and the fruit of his suffering. Let me give you a section of Isaiah 53. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. And then a few verses down, it says, and this is the hint of the resurrection, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring. So even though he's giving his life for sin, the resolve is he will see the fruit of what comes out of this painful crucifixion. So Paul is using scriptures like this to reason, to explain, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. While we're talking about Scripture, I want to talk about how you and I approach someone else with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There used to be a time where I would be around Christians that would be so adamant, so argumentative, uh, so in your face that I just would think, oh, I don't even want to be around them because that, that's not what I enjoy, and it makes me feel really, really uncomfortable. But other Christians take the pendulum and swing it the other way and never talk about Jesus at all because we don't want to bother anybody. We just want everybody to be nice and just get along. But these words are letting us know that it's important to dialogue. So Paul reasoned. The gospel is reasonable. One of the reasons I early on stuck with the gospel is it is so reasonable I can't escape from it. I cannot explain why the 12, yea, verily, the 11 disciples, Judas gone, uh, would die for their faith if they didn't see the resurrection. There's no reasonable explanation and why for 20 centuries, Christians after Christians, still to this day, the largest section of martyrdom happening in the 20th century, why Christians are still dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's because we, it's not because we're stupid, it's because it's reasonable that I am a sinner, I need a savior, he died for my sins, Witnesses saw him rise from the dead who were willing to die for their testimony, and they wrote down the story in the gospel. And so it's reasonable. Paul uses the word here, explaining. Uh, that means to open up. So when I became a Christian at the age of 18, I knew very, very little. Uh, I've told the story that I confused the story of Christmas and Moses. Uh, because I'd heard those stories somewhere in my childhood going to different churches. And so I thought Jesus was born in a manger and then floated down the Nile. <laughs> and the princess of Pharaoh found Jesus and, and uh, you know, I just didn't know. So I needed someone to open up the scriptures and explain something to me. But here's a word he's proving to them, convincing them. A lot of times we'll say, I just can't convince you. The Holy Spirit's got to convince you, so I'm not talking to you anymore. No, we need to come back and talk again with our friends for them to know that we're going to be their friend for life, whether they accept Christ or not. We are loyal, we are friends, and we can dialogue, not every time about Jesus, but when someone wants to open up and talk about it, we are there to prove 
uh, that Christ is the Son of God. But here's a couple of words that aren't here, but you'll find them in our next chapter, chapter 18, debate. That's a word that we often fear, no debate. When things get debating, uh, we start running because they get heated. And a second word is refuting, refuting false arguments, but Paul did both. He was this passionate person. And the end result in verse 4 is he persuaded, uh, some Jews were persuaded and joined as did a large number of Greeks. And then he lets us know some very prominent women as well, which usually means wealthy, higher socioeconomic status that are also following Christ. So the simple point here of talking to people who have some knowledge of Scripture is to hang in there. Be willing to have dialogue and know your stuff a little bit. That's why I just gave you two chapters to know. Uh, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. If you ask me the question when it comes to debating and proving and dialogue and refuting, when does the debate go bad? Anybody thinking that right now? Yeah. I remember sharing Christ with my grandparents uh, for the first time, and it went bad. My grandmother said, so, and she was leading us into a trap. She, she said, so, are you saying that Jesus will forgive anybody? Yeah, yeah, Grandma, whatever they've done. So, would he forgive a bank robber? Yeah, Grandma. Would he forgive a murderer? Well, that's a tough one, but if the person is really con- repentant and coming, yes. And then she leaned in and says, then I want nothing to do with your Jesus. Uh, and, and it went south from there. But I have to say that without that dialogue and debate, my grandparents would have never accepted Christ some seven years later. Once we had that debate, we said, all right, never talk about it again. <laughs> Now we have to just show them the love of Jesus. And so uh, we just showed them the love of Jesus every week. And finally, my wife and I, because we lived in Whittier when we were first married, and that's where my grandparents were, we had dinner with them once a week, and we just lived it. And finally, when my grandmother was challenged by colon cancer, from which she eventually died, I asked her, uh, Grandma, I was trying to bring up the subject, uh, how are you going to do with this surgery? None of us can go in with you. And she says, it's all right. Jesus is, Jesus is going in with me. <laughs> Whoa. And then and she told me later about her commitment to Christ. So fabulous for us to bring it up to have dialogue, but where a a, a dialogue goes bad is when assertive turns to aggressive. Paul was a very assertive, passionate person. Whatever Paul did, he was a 10. In fact, even when it came to sin, he says, I am the chief of sinners. So you are never going to beat Paul at anything. And I'm sure 
when it came to debating, he was difficult. But where we cross the line is when we go from being assertive to aggressive. Now I have to win the argument because my pride is hooked. And when my pride gets hooked, we can do some uh, dangerous things, like belittling the person that we're actually talking to, making fun of something about their life. Uh, And it just doesn't make any sense that we would wound or hurt someone when we're trying to bring them to the love of Christ. Yelling and name-calling and all those kinds of things. So we never cross the line. We are fully passionate about the truth, and we are fully loving. If you're looking for a book to follow up on this, uh, I think the classic by Lee uh, Strobel is uh, as good as any, The Case for Christ, where you have uh, a graduate of Yale Law School who is also a reporter who is an unbeliever who begins to investigate the claims of Christ and becomes a believer and writes about it in his book, a fabulous classic uh, to, to read, The Case for Christ. And yet, there's not always a happy ending. So you have all these people that come to Christ, but it says in verse 5 that others were jealous and they started a riot. And things become uh, very heated, and it tells us in the book of Thessalonians, which is a great follow-up to this, to read 1 Thessalonians, that the Thessalonians, or the readers of Thessalonica, or as they say in Greece, Thessalonica, that's the proper Greek pronunciation, um, that they were birthed in opposition. It's heavy to think about people accepting Christ in a society that is opposed to Christ and Christianity, such as Syria, such as Iraq, where the vast majority are anti who you are becoming, and possibly friends and relatives that you have to count the cost. Some of you have, even here. So when it comes to dialoguing with religious people who know some scripture, there are some advantages. You can tee up off of that and go very, very quickly uh, in discipling someone into Christ. But there's some disadvantages too. Um, The disadvantages are the religious people that want to protect the status quo and keep it always the way it's always been, and they see you as the agent of change, and then thus anti-you. So to bring this first section to a close, you and I right now, we live in what I would call a post-Christian nation. And I, please don't take offense at that. I, as I travel, I would say there's parts of the Midwest, especially around Grand Rapids, that is still Christian. Uh, there is uh, parts of, the, large part of the Southeast that is culturally still Christian, but uh, on the coast, both uh, the right coast and the wrong coast, uh, they, they are largely post-Christian or un-Christian. And, um, and we're gonna talk about that uh, at the last part of this uh, message. But because a lot of our society is post-Christian, that means there's a latent, a lingering 
mindset about Christ. Somebody remembers something about church. So on Easter and Christmas, they still go to church. People complain about that often, that our population on Easter is almost three times what our population on any normal service would be. And they say, well, all these Easter Christian, uh, Christmas Christians. And I said, I love it. It gives me one more chance to present the scriptures, and they're open to the idea of listening. So we need to learn to dialogue with people who know something of the scriptures. Now, before we move on to people that don't know the scriptures, uh, let's just follow the chronology here, because in the chronology, Paul moves over to Berea, and it introduces the idea of honest seeking. The Bereans sought the Lord with an honest heart, and that's something that's paramount for someone who's going to follow Jesus Christ. Verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas, so they're escaping from Thessalonica to travel about 20 miles to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined, meaning examined for themselves, not Paul telling them, but on their own, examining the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. A lot of times people think you have to talk really, really fast, like a salesman, to get them to just say yes, and then pray the prayer, and then they walk away saying, wow, what did I just do? That is ridiculous. We don't want people to to, uh, pray something they don't even know what they're praying or don't even know what we're doing. We want them to take their time to think about it, to examine, to know that when I decide to follow Christ, I really decide to follow Christ. I had a gentleman back at Ralph's when we were back there, um, and he happened to be Jewish. He came up to me. And he says, I I really enjoy your messages, and I'm really enjoying coming, listening to him. And I asked him, do do you know Jesus as your Messiah? And he says, I'm not convinced. And I said, well, I'm glad you're here. Let me know when you are. So five weeks later, as I came out the back of the church, he was standing there waiting for me, and he says, I'm convinced. And I said, Do you want to pray right now? And he says, no. I want to do it on my own. I'm going to go home and give my heart and life to Christ. I love that, that a a fish just stares at the bait and stares at the bait and examines and examines and looks it over and decides to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. You don't have to pull the line really quickly and just barely snag. Let them swallow the whole thing. Everything they're going to find about Jesus is absolutely rock solid true. So you'll see me many times, I'll give an altar call anywhere from every three to five weeks, not every week, because I'm just letting people come and absorb. That's the way I am. I don't want any fast talker uh, getting me to do something I'm not ready to do. I want to know what I'm doing. And that's who the Bereans were. As a result, verse 12, many of them believed, as did also a a number of prominent Greek women and Greek men. But 
when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too to agitate the crowds, stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy stay back to disciple the new believers, and Paul takes a ship all the way down to Athens and begins that journey. So the Bereans were more noble, it says in verse 10, and in, uh, in verse 11, and they received with eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily. Listen, Jeremiah the prophet said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And that's who the Bereans were. They're gonna check it out. And when they decide, they're gonna decide with all of their hearts. It's not gonna be a halfway decision. I wish that when I talk with people and you talk to people that we could have an impartial, objective discussion where we could be honest and just with no strings attached say, all right, do we, do we agree that this world is broken? Okay, uh, do we agree uh, that we're part of the brokenness problem? And could we agree that wouldn't it be great if, if there was something that started making me whole uh, from the inside out that cleansed me of my wrong and sin and started fixing me up? And what if a lot of people began to do that? Uh, and and you, however you get into it, you have this open dialogue where you're, you're examining things and you can talk about Jesus and was he the Messiah? You can talk about scripture. Is it really truly the word? But the problem is we're rarely objective. We're often subjective and we're often biased. We come into the dialogue carrying all this baggage and if you can think back to your BC days, you had a ton of baggage. One of them is loyalty to family and tradition. I've told you, my dad's, when I told him I became a Christian, he said, where did I go wrong? <laughs> my dad is a graduate of Berkeley, and he just said, you know, I did not raise you to be this person. Where did I go wrong? But if you have any kind of religious backgrounds or traditions and you become a Christian, uh, you, or you're thinking about it, you're thinking, whoa, if I become a Christian, it's gonna rock the boat in my family. Then secondly, there's past hurt. A lot of people wanna consider God, but they can't get to that because they've been hurt by authoritative figures, whether a father or a priest, which has hurt and wounded them, and, and thus we globalize and say everybody's bad because of this issue. Another thing is our presuppositions. For example, I was an anti-supernaturalist. Miracles do not happen. So consequently, the resurrection cannot be true. So I can't be open to the discussion. Or there's misunderstandings or judgments about church history and what the church should have, could have done back in the Crusades, in the time of Hitler. And I bring that all into the moment. But the funny thing is, we don't do that with other things. Like if I hand you a dollar bill, you don't say to me, hey, 
I'm not touching that. I've had some counterfeit money before. <laughs> or if I give you free tickets to, to Disneyland, you don't say, hey, my two-year-old cried the last time we were at Disneyland. We're never going again. But for some reason, we do that with God. And we attach all of these negatives to taking a step towards God. Then there's these presuppositions that I have regarding justice. If God is a just God, that means everyone should get to go to heaven. If God is a just God, everyone should live the way they want to live and still get to go to heaven. But it's just my view of justice. Or there's people-pleasing. Uh, I, I can't make this decision because I want to please everybody. Or there's, there's this presupposition that there's a tension between science and God. I want you to let you to know there is no tension be, between science and God. God is a very big God. And you can look under a microscope, uh, micro, or you can go macro looking out into the universe, and whatever you find and discover, God is not fearful. Can we just say that? God is not fearful. And it's, it's a false tension, a false uh, argument that people that drive around with uh, fishes on the back of their, uh, their car gobbling up Darwin and then Darwin gobbling up uh, fishes. Nonsense. There is no tension. Reliability of Scripture. People saying to me, yeah, well, who wrote the Bible? And yet, didn't the monks kind of make some mistakes? I mean, think about it. They didn't have computers, and they didn't have this. And um, it, it's this chronological snobbery. Well, where we somehow do it all great now, but those ancient people that were living in caves didn't know what they were doing. Uh, the truth of the matter is what we have found through uh, critical theology is that these scriptures are absolutely reliable. The problem is, do I believe it? Textual criticism, do I believe it or not? A false perception of Christians. I struggled with that. I met a few weird Christians (laughs) in high school, and I just thought, oh, I don't want to become weird. It goes on and on and on. One of the issues is personal pain. I've experienced pain in my life, and how could a God who loves me allow me to experience pain? But the ultimate, ultimate issue of why I don't step into the boat and follow Christ is usually control. I want to control what I do. I want to control what I say. I want to control what I think, and I don't want God having his will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in me as it is in heaven. I don't want God to be leading and guiding me. I want to be the king of my life. And that's usually the decision that we have to make, that I am now making him not just savior, but L-O-R-D, Lord. So all these issues are going on with the people that you're talking to and you're trying to have an objective, innocent conversation. So occasionally you'll bump up against something, and it'll be one of these things. And you realize, okay, I'm still their friend, we're still gonna dialogue, but we're gonna just nurse this thing through. I'm not gonna react. 
When I uh, first became a Christian, I was in a rock and roll band, a cover band, and um, uh, I decided that the first thing I needed to do, since I not only was in the band, but I also managed the band, uh, that I needed to let them know that I was a believer. So I invited them over uh, to my parents' home where I was actually, actually at a friend's house. We went to his house, and, uh, and we sat around the living room, and they said, so what's up, Mark? Well, I, I just wanted you to know. I made a big decision in my life. Uh, and they said, what's that? And I said, I am now a follower of Jesus. Now, wouldn't you think that everyone would have said, cool, oh, I'm so happy for you, uh, you know, or, hey, tell me what that means to you, or something. All four of the other members froze, and they kind of looked at each other. And finally, they said, so what does that mean? And I said, well, it means that I'm forgiven, and, and I'm going to heaven. And, and they said, no, 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 we don't care about that. <laughs> we want to know, what does that mean for the band? That's what we're asking about. And I said, well, quite frankly, I don't know what it means. I, I, I just, I'm a month into this. And I don't know. And, and they said, well, we've got four months of commitments to play. And I said, well, so we play all the commitments. I'm not, I said, I'm not quitting the band. I'm just letting you know as friends a good thing that happened to me. And obviously, it wasn't good to them. So much so that Dave Rios, who's still my dear friend after 47 years, um, he ran out of the room. And he ran down the street to his 56 Chevy station wagon. And... Um, and I ran down the street after him. And I said, Dave, Dave, what's going on? And he was just shaking. He says, dude, I know everything you're saying is right. You know, I've, I've, I've been raised Catholic, and, and I know everything you're saying is right. And I said, okay. And, and he says, but I can't do it. I can't give my life to Jesus. I said, I, well, I didn't ask you to, but tell me why not. And he says, because I love to get loaded. I love to get high, and, I, and I, I would have to give up control and give my, the control of my life to Jesus. And I said, hey, Dave, all I wanted you to know is what's happened to me. But can I pray with you, and then you go on your way? He said, sure. A month later, Dave gave his heart and life to Jesus. Um, Five months later, we were kicked out of the band. <laughs> but Dave's heart was like a Berean heart. As soon as he heard it, he knew, oh my gosh, it's true. I know it's true. And, 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 and you can know all the arguments and all the reasons, but it's the person that finally says, yeah, I want I want Jesus. The final thing I want us to consider is people who don't know the scriptures, and that's an increasing population here in America. Uh, this is the growing population in the West, and it's the people of Athens. So in verse 13, 
actually verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was filled, was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So he's waiting for Paul, Silas, and, and Timothy to come down. And while he's there, he's just stirring up the conversation. And so it says that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So they said, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know the new teaching that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners uh, who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Athens was this uh, hotbed of new ideas and philosophies. And so Paul is invited to the Areopagus where all these wise men would sit around and listen to the Apostle Paul and, and what he had to say. And so Paul stood up and he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. What a great thing to do, to compliment, to start out complimenting a person. I see that you're a family person. I see that you're passionate about being successful in business. I see that you love your, your wife. I see something. I don't know why Christians sometimes start out bad. Did you know that you're a sinner? You know, what if a salesman up down here at Lexus uh, was just waiting for you to drive in in the parking lot and sees you drive in and says, Kind of driving a piece of trash there, aren't you? <laughs> Is that the way you start a relationship? No. You just find some commonality. You're religious, I'm religious, uh, and, and, and compliment them in that way. So he goes on to say, for as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. They have tons of idols in the marketplace. And I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Brilliant, Paul. You're going to talk to us about the unknown God. Now, if you read the rest of his sermon, you would find out that many people in in modern-day Christianity would be upset with Paul. What? You're, you're complimenting them? What? You're preaching about the unknown God? You know who he is. Why are you calling him unknown? And then later on, he quotes from secular poets uh, and philosophers that they would know, but Paul is out trying to win people who don't have any understanding of Scripture and no similarity to Paul's Judeo-Christian background. So I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. And he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it 
is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. There were some Athenians who actually believed that. They, some that weren't polytheistic but monotheistic or uh, believed that there was one main God who, who made everything. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that, and actually science uh, has uh, validated that, that from one man and woman, all the nations have come, and he's given breath and everything else to us. Um, they inhabited the whole earth, I'm sorry, in verse 26, and marked out their appointed time in history in the boundaries and the lands. God did this so that they would seek him, perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. And here he's quoting uh, from uh, a Cretan poet from the island of Crete, Epimenides, and then he's also quoting from Eratus from Cilicia, which is where Paul is from. And so he, he knows these guys. He quotes from not from their scriptures, but kind of like their scriptures, the important people in their culture. So in verse 29, he says, therefore, since we are his offspring, and he moves to the idea that we are made in the image of God, and he moves from there to the idea of redemption and to the idea that one day judgment is coming to the earth, and it's time to make a decision. At the point of the resurrection, everyone freaks out and says, wait, 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 we, we got to come back. And, and, and figure this thing out. You're talking about someone getting up from the dead. So Paul gives us an example of you and I reaching out to our unreligious neighbors, friends, work associates, who wouldn't know the difference between Genesis or Revelation. Where would you begin? We have some great models in our culture who do this very thing, and you just probably have never thought about it. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a master. He understood that if you drive through the front door, in fact, he actually pens this, if you come up to the front door of someone's, uh, someone's life, their religious door, and you knock and say, hello, I am here to change your religious world and how you think about the world, you can bet that door is bolted and they're standing behind the door with a shotgun. <laughs> Just saying. So how are you getting in? So C.S. Lewis says you've got to go in through the side window. And he used the side window of fantasy. Just creating a story. People love to read nonfiction. I mean, fiction, rather, and just a story. And his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, was the master of, of, of that. So people could read myth, not feel offended, love the story, and begin to think about great themes such as evil and judgment and good and redemption and heroes who bring about redemption. Think about these kind of things. But it's not just in literature. 
Uh, there's other means that people are wide open to think about. I've, I've witnessed this last week at the Daniel Summit. It's largely a business summit. But speakers speaking on, on bullet points of how to be successful in business, but bringing it around and bringing in their story of how Jesus changed their lives and, and changed how they thought about doing business and not just caring about their company, but caring about their family and caring about other people and how they treat their employees and so forth and so on. Brilliant. It happens in music. In fact, next week is the Bro-Am. And there's a group called Switchfoot that, that, is, that has largely been both Christian and mainstream bringing both audiences to the table to think about great main themes that stir our hearts up uh, to think about Christ. In the sport world, many sport figures do the, this very, very thing. So you and I have this opportunity all the time. Music, sport, business, commonality with our neighbors where we can't lead with John 3.16. But we can lead with truth. Listen, are you still there? I'm almost done. Hang in there. There are three longings in every single human being. It is the internal apologetic that no one can escape from. Number one, every single person is longing for love. Absolutely. Especially divine love. The face of God. Secondly, every human being is made hardwired to long to be accepted especially accepted by God, i.e. forgiveness. And every human being is hardwired to long for meaning and purpose. Meaning of the universe, but especially what's my purpose in life. And the and those are great dialogues that are just secular dialogues that bring per, a person uh, into thinking about God and begin to have this conversation with you. So whether they're religious, whether they're non-religious, uh, God wants to reach everybody with the wonderful news of Jesus Christ. Um, how has Jesus changed your life? A little bit or major? And it would be a shame for us to keep it to ourselves and, and, and so this gives us an open door, but we pray that every person's heart, like the Bereans, would be open to hear the message. Now, let me close with this idea, because some of you are just thinking, oh my gosh, I got a, I got a class in Missions 101, and I, I, I don't even know what to do anymore. I got to go back and think, are, are they religious? Are they non-religious? And what do I do now? And that is just, it's all, all you've done is confuse me, Mark. So let me give you just a, a, a little idea. And this comes from Uncle Bob McKenzie. And by the way, if you happen to see him today in the courtyard, today is his birthday. So he's not in here right now, so no point in singing. But uh, Uncle Bob says this. 
The easiest way to start a dialogue with anybody about faith is to meet them and ask them, on Monday morning, how did your weekend go? Just ask them that. How did your weekend go? It's much better than, what do you think about this weather? weather? Are we going to talk about June gloom forever? I mean, aren't we done with this? It's just... So a, a much better conversation beyond weather is, how was your weekend? And at first, they'll only just share a couple things with you about their weekend. But next week, ask them, and really want to know, how was your weekend? How was your weekend this week? How was, if they're going to begin to ask you, how was your weekend? And you go back and forth, weeks, how was your weekend? And you're learning more and more about their lives. It's the incarnation. It's Christmas. You're entering into their world, discovering what, what band they listened to, what restaurant they went to, what happened with their kids and soccer, all of that kind of stuff. And you do that for weeks. And one day, you're going to get the answer, it was cruddy. And that's when you want to lean in and say, how so? And if they trust you, they're going to tell you why they had a cruddy weekend. And you get to say, I'm so sorry about that. And maybe if they trust you enough, you can even say, uh, can I pray for you or I'll pray for you that you have a better one next week. And keeps going on and on and on. And finally comes the day where they begin to discover what you do on your weekend and your two lives begin to merge. It's the incarnation. It's the manger. It's the way it happens. And isn't that simple? It can be, how's your family? How is this? How is that? The point is, you have to be a person that truly cares. You can't look at people as just some uh, notch in your belt. Want another one to Christ. Uh, you know, you have to truly care about people because God truly cares. It's the story of the gospel. So as we close this morning, I want to pray for you and I want to pray for, for me that you and I um, have an opportunity even this week if you're daring enough with me, even this week, to begin entering into someone's life with love, with the idea that one day, whether they be religious or non-religious, that I might be able to share Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you care. And thank you that there is no better product on earth but the love that we have discovered through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we invite you by your Holy Spirit to come to each one of us right now. While we're praying, Lord, put on our minds and hearts uh, someone that we can reach out to, to share your love. We pray that you would give us courage. And we pray, God, that you would make this very, very natural, just a natural conversation of love that would begin. And while we're praying, God, we pray that 
your spirit would flow throughout North Coastal County and many people would continue to discover the love of Jesus Christ. It's his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to remind you as we close this morning that if you need prayer, we have people up in front that would love to pray for you. Uh, what a great day. Um, so I hope the rest of your weekend is not cruddy. <laughs> and that you have a marvelous time. Don't forget to check out the things in the courtyard that uh, were mentioned in the announcements. So may God be with you this week. May God lift up his face and shine upon you. May he be gracious to you, giving you his undeserved love and favor. And may he grant you his peace in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.